0: Hey Rockheads, the Norwegian Developers Conference is once more coming to London, December 1st through the 5th. Come hang out with Richard and me in the fishbowl while hobnobbing with such celebrities as John Skeet, Don Syme, Scott Allen, Denise Jacobs, Damian Edwards, and many more. That's NDC London, December 1st through 5th. Check it out online at ndc-london.com. We'll see you in London. .NET Rocks, episode 1054. With guest
1: Jeremy Thake, recorded Monday, October twentieth, two thousand fourteen.
0: And that's how you do that. What's up, Mister Campbell?
1: Had a fun weekend, man. Yeah, yeah. I uh, one of the neighbor boys here. He's fourteen. His uh, his name is Tom, and he's he's into hardware. Mm-hmm. And was, uh, has been saving up to buy his own computer. Right. And uh, had some old parts from an XP machine from forever ago. And I said, Hey, I'm about to update some of my machines. You are welcome to any of my parts. So I literally kicked out like, a, uh, uh, an, an i5 motherboard and a video card. Pretty much could build a most of the machine just from spare parts. Yeah, cool. And in exchange for his efforts, he, ru- he ran, rerun a bunch of wiring for me. And I picked up a new monitor, one of these, uh, Dell 27 inch. The native resolution on it is 2560 by 1440. Huh. Okay. So not as quite as high as the 30s we've got, right? right which are 2560 by 1600 mm-hmm. and use DVI-D. Yep. This is the new generation monitor and it's got everything on it. It's got VGA, DVI, uh, HDMI, and DisplayPort. Wow. So everything, huh? So, But it's also 25 feet away from the machine. Just the way the office lays out, it's, it's a long way from the bay. Oh, okay. So I picked up a 25-foot HDMI cable. Easy enough to do. Hmm.
0: Smart. Plug it in bef- and test it before I actually fire it up. Only does 1920 by 1200. I thought, I, for some reason, I thought HDMI only went up to 1080, but that's not my, you know. HDMI will go up to the 4K, to 3840 by 2160,
1: but oh. only if the parts actually support it. And the, in this particular Dell, the HDMI, and it's in fine print in this documentation when I dug through it, mm. only up to 1920. Oh, okay. So then I figure, okay, I got go to go display DisplayPort, but DisplayPort only runs 10 feet on normal cables. You that's only it. Run 10 foot. That's not long enough. No. So I find a supplier that makes a powered DP cable, costs $60, $70, but it'll do the trick. So I order that. Meantime, I plug in the old VGA wire as usual, mm-hmm. and guess what resolution it came up at? VGA? I was expecting 1920, what had been running before with the old monitor, which seems reasonable, right? Yeah, sure. No, nah, came up with a different resolution, 2048 by 1152. Wow. That's weird. Like, what's that? It's higher res than the HDMI cable would do. It's not full resolution, but you know, there you are. But it's clear. I uh, yeah, you know what? These new monitors, dude. I mean, I love my thirty. When you actually see the latest generation of monitors, besides yours, you will be surprised. They are very bright and very crisp. And we're not just talking a Retina display here. Just a new monitor. Just a new generation monitor. Yeah, this huh. is a twenty. And it's, I mean, it's a twenty-seven inch, but it's and twenty-five sixty by fourteen forty. Just a little bit lower resolution than your thirty-inch. Pretty close.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I just picked up a new 27-inch monitor, and I have yet to plug it in, so I'll I'll do the comparison. You may have the same experience. Now I'm starting to think, do I
1: need new 30s? Hmm. <laughs> Love my 30s. Well, you know, I'm battling when to go to the 4K. Like, does it make sense to get a 4K monitor? Yeah, I don't know. We've been talking about it on in the you know, mid-show a
0: few times, yeah. and I'm just trying to decide what I want to do the 4K I Yeah. I can barely see it as is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be leaning and squinting anymore. You know, fifties is just not that far away, buddy. Yeah, yeah. You're it's right. disturbing. All right. Well, that's pretty cool, man. Uh, my story is that I swapped my daughter's Surface Pro 2 for a Surface RT because she only uses it for office and reading and stuff, right? Right. And now she's got a MacBook at, at college. So, And I did this because I wanted to install Avid Sibelius, which I bought. And this is a music notation software because it's got the pen. Oh, yeah. Small enough, I can put it right on the piano, connect it via MIDI, and actually write out charts and stuff and play them in. That's cool. Yeah. So um, I'm struggling with the licensing. It's kind of sucking right now i'm kind of hating avid right now <laughs> you know everything works and it says it's activated and then another box comes up cannot be activated at this time but you said you were activated and then <laughs> contact your administrator
1: i am the I administrator i don't
0: know what to do and then to make matters worse when i run it after that it says unspecified error uh excellent awesome yeah. i so love it's it something else yeah. you know it is something else That's hilarious. All right. Well, let's run the crazy music because I got something good here. Oh, cool. All
2: right,
0: buddy. What do you got? You know our friend Thomas Betts. I do indeed. One of our fans. He wrote me a great little email that may help some other people out because I love it when people pull their hair out over stuff, waste a lot of time, and then document it for everyone else so that they don't have to do it as well. Right. That's exactly what this is. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash SQL query of T, SQL of T, he wrote me a letter. He says, Carl, as the .NET lead on my team, I was recently asked if there was some easy way to bypass writing link to EF queries for our Oracle database. I didn't know of one, but someone else found the SQL query of T method on the dbcontext.database object. And that's what I linked to. This allows you to write inline parameterized SQL statements and return an I enumerable T result. T may be an EF model object, but it doesn't have to be. If it is an EF object, you lose all the typical tracking features. That's not good. In our case, we were just doing a null row check. So returning an int was very straightforward. The reason we had to bypass our link statement was we kept running into a bug slash feature slash known issue. Take your pick where indexes were not being used on string fields, causing a full table scan. Uh, Apparently, Entity Framework doesn't always play nice when passing .NET strings as parameters to non-Unicode fields and wraps the value in an Oracle conversion function, thereby bypassing the index. Weird. Yeah, we tried using Entity non-Unicode, but that was only sometimes helpful. Needless to say, based on the frustrations I've had so far with this new but legacy code, I would not recommend using EF for Oracle. We have had more issues trying to get code to build and run because of DLL hell, the likes of which I haven't seen since before .NET. Wow. You know, it's it's funny how we just presume that these
1: databases are going to work. Yeah, we're spoiled. And it is always harder than you think.
0: It's never been easy integrating with Oracle Never.NET. .NET no. or, or
1: DB2 for that matter. Yeah. It's not,
0: I don't want to blame Oracle per se, although let's face it, they're pretty hostile. Well, they're different systems. Yeah,
1: and they think differently, and this kind of connectivity code is hard.
0: Yeah, and it, last time I checked, even for, for ADO providers, there's something like three or four of them, including the one from you know, the, the official Oracle one itself. But there's like three third-party. Why do you need three? Yeah. Guess why? None of them work. <laughs> Dark, dude. <laughs> I'm being cynical. Of course they work, but you know you run into this kind of stuff once in a while. That right. this is exactly what Thomas is running up against. So uh, for sure, I told him I would read it on Better No Framework, and uh, that was his suggestion anyway. And hopefully we have prevented somebody else from tearing their hair out. Thank you, Thomas. Going through that pain. Yeah, and it's funny to mention Thomas because the the comment
1: I'm reading is not related to Thomas. I was thinking of him when I selected it. Okay. Because, you know, we have this, I'm going about to do something fairly unprecedented. We we have folks that contribute on the discuss forums on the .NET Rocks site all the time. Guys like Tom Betts and Jared Kapelman and so forth. And all of them have gotten a mug or two along the way, sometimes three or four. I try to read comments from, from new posters to get out new mugs, right? I mean, it's fun to have a collection of .NET Rocks mugs, but that's not actually the goal, right? It's to try and get them out to lots of different people. But this particular comment, and I'm looking at show uh ten seventeen, this is the one we did with Mike Wood uh back in August 2014, where we we're talking about migrating to Azure. And this particular comment uh comes from Sunil Ravu Now, which is not that unusual, except that I literally read one of Sunil's comments last week. Mm. And so he's already got a mug. Yeah. We're gonna see him at Dev Intersection. He's going in our in our conversation to get him his mug, we said, Hey, I'm going to Dev Intersection. So I'm like Sunil, I think we need to buy you a drink or something. I don't know that I want to send you another mug, per se, but it was so relevant to our conversation. I have to read this. Let's do it. So this is the show we did with Mike Wood about uh, migrating to Azure. And Sunil says, around the 26th minute, Carl wanted to know if Mike knew anybody who connected with an on-premise database from an Azure website. Mm -hmm. And I was excited about this because I have this exact problem, and unfortunately, the Discussion went towards the requirements of data to be on premise and not the technical problem of how to do oh. it. To actually connect an Azure website to your on-prem database. Right. Today it's not possible to connect an on-premise database to an Azure website. Really? The roundabout way is to use the Azure Service Bus to push messages to the Service Bus from your website and then pick up, have another program that picks up messages on premise. From the service bus to actually do the database work, and then send the stuff back through other sets of messages. Mm. Not an easy layer to write no. for an existing website. Like it can be done, but it's hard to do. And and Senil goes on to say, a lot of organizations are prepared to move the websites to Azure. Right, which I totally get. Right, right? I want the cloud scale. By the way, the older daughter's web comic yeah. is burying my internet connection. Oh my right god, now. that's so awesome. Yeah, they're doing. I'm going to have to push them to the cloud. Because I can't get enough pipe into my home uh, rack. That's how busy they are. They po- only post a page a, a week. And when that page goes up, pinned to the wall. And how much bandwidth do you have? 200 megabit connections. Are you kidding me? No. And they're pinning for 24 hours every time they post. That is awesome. Congratulations to I Alice. know. It's, it's aw- great news. It's hilarious. But you know, speaking of cloud. Yeah. So, Sunil... Uh, yeah, you move your website up to Azure, take advantage of that, but you're not the database because you've got data protection requirements. Or, hey, look, the company's just not comfortable putting the database up there. Or maybe you've got other apps that are still in house and need to work against that same database. You're not, just not prepared to make that sacrifice, That's right? right? Yeah. You want the site up there able to access the database. Mm-hmm. And when you got a big database, you know, terabytes moving, it's just A, it's expensive, it's time consuming. It's not easy to do. Harry. So, One workaround approach would be to create a virtual machine to host the website, just part of your own virtual network, not take advantage of Azure websites, but it kind of undermines the whole point of making Azure website in the first place. Right. And he ends his comment with, I hope this story gets better, and Mike Wood, the guest from the show actually commented back saying, you know, you gotta check out Azure Hybrid Connections. It's currently in preview and this is a month or two ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it should be coming out of preview really soon, but it could fit your needs. It's actually, this is one of the things they're looking at. So these bits are getting built and uh, it's worth us looking at it. So I don't think Sunil's scenario is that weird and clearly Microsoft's starting to address it. So it looks like a promising opportunity. So Sunil, thank you so much for your comment again because it was a whopper dude thank yep. you and i uh, hope we'll see you at dev intersection and uh, if you really want another .NET rocks mug i will send you to one and if you'd like a .NET rocks mug write a comment on the website at dot or in any of our mobile apps because
0: we've got them for android windows 8 ios and windows phone 7 and 8. and that brings us to jeremy Thake. jeremy is the technical product manager at microsoft and the team responsible for the developer story for Office 365 development. Previously, he worked at AvPoint Incorporated, a large ISV, as the chief architect shipping two apps to the Office Store. He's been heavily involved in the SharePoint community since 06 and was awarded the SharePoint MVP 4 years in a row before retiring the title to move to Microsoft. You can hear him weekly interviewing people on the Office 365 Developer Podcast and catch him on Twitter at jfake. Welcome Jeremy. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, my first experience with Office 365 was at a conference somewhere, and I was sitting with Richard so at, you know before we were going online, and uh, I needed, I can't remember what I needed, a presentation, a PowerPoint, something from a PowerPoint presentation, and I was on a, a tablet, and I didn't have Office installed on this tablet, and I think it might have even been an RT, a Surface RT, and so this was a while ago maybe a year or two ago. It might have been on the last road trip, Richard. I don't know if you remember this, but I went and installed Office 365, and that gave me the ability to pull up the PowerPoint slide that I needed to be able to extract all the data out of it that I wanted and move on. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. Or maybe it was a Word doc or something that I had to open and sign. I can't remember what it was, but it was something like that. And I just thought, wow, that's really cool that this... You know, Office for the RT wasn't even out at that point, but the 365 version or Office Online or whatever it was called back then just worked.
2: Yeah, it's funny. Like, I I find myself using the browser more and more as I'm, like, launching documents from inside, like, OneDrive for business or especially now I'm using Delve so much more. Um, just keeping mm-hmm. up with what, what my colleagues are using and just clicking and launching that straight in the browser. And it's just the experience is just so smooth. When, and you can kind yeah. of grab that content and do light editing. But I, I'd still think, you know, I'm using the desktop clients for, you know, heavy editing of documents. But as I say, I've got web can pages Can you tell us a little right bit now. about
1: Microsoft Delve? Because yeah. I don't know that anybody knows about this yet.
2: Yeah, so Delve was launched last month. Um, and basically, it's, it's the same team that worked on the search technology and uh, it's using the office graph under the covers. So the office graph is this notion of, there's objects like documents and uh, spreadsheets and um, presentations that are stored within your SharePoint sites or your OneDrive for business sites. And it understands you based on the organisation. So, for instance, um, my manager and my line, ma- uh, my manager's manager. If there's any documents that I have visibility to that they are working on, it'll show up in my da- Delve as a card, um, and I can launch Delve directly from. The app launcher inside Office three six five, and um, mm-hmm. th- there are apps coming as well for each of the devices. And I, it's funny when they were coming up with the the name of Delve, it was codenamed Oslo internally. And um, ah, it, yeah, oh no, right, and and it was. Called- Have they heard of the other project? <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason it was Codename Oslo is because that's where the search team who built it were. So, and obviously, you know, we knew we couldn't go live with that product name. And so, um, you know, Delve was the final release, but I, it's funny. Like I joke that, it, you know, it should have been called Stalker because I have all of, um, I follow all of the engineers in the various different teams within Office 365 and, you know, that I have access to those design spec documents. But what Delve does is it makes all those documents a lot more discoverable because if there's a bunch of people that I follow that are editing and reviewing that document it highlights them um, higher up my stack as a card and says that documents trending around you know the group product manager of or, you know office developer program or whatnot so it's a great way of me without them necessarily going by the way there's this design document that's kind of hidden four levels deep in a folder in a team site you actually have access to um, that we've just updated so so I love Dell from that ability to kind of keep up to date with what's going on um, internally at Very Microsoft cool. But the neat bit about that is, we currently have the Office Graph APIs available in preview, and um, they only only shipped um, like two weeks ago, and we've already had uh, three apps in the Office Store and an app in the Windows 8 Store and an app in the Windows Phone Store that actually like use the information coming from that graph um, with their own applications, which is which is really neat. So it's,
1: it's starting to work, and
2: you know, it seems to me
1: like these are the byproducts of actually pulling together. Folks using Office with SharePoint and the search tools so that you can really take advantage of the knowledge you could have around the information in your, in your business.
2: Yeah, I think fundamentally like 365 is, you know, you've got your mail, your calendar, your contacts, um, which we, we knew and loved as, as Exchange when we were in the kind of the on-premises world. And then obviously files was, you know, SharePoint, team sites, and then uh, the OneDrive for business products. And, and I think what's happening over time is, is, there's additional services that keep getting added in, like Yammer and, um, and now with Delve and uh, the video portal we talked about in, uh, in March of this year at the SharePoint conference. And the things like the office graph is like weaving across all of those products and services and allowing you to kind of get into the information in ways that, you know, you wouldn't have been able to do before without really heavily thrashing the, the service APIs to c- constantly keep up to date with what's going on. Right. And um, the vendors are jumping all over it because they're, th- as well as the read They'll in the notion in the future is they'll be able to push into that graph. So, if you're an um, external ERP or uh, external CRM, um, you can actually add your own cards into that, that graph and they'll show up in Delve, like, Jeremy's added a, an, an, an opportunity against this customer in, you know, XCRM or, or whatever it, or whatever it may be. Well,
1: and this is what interests me and I think it's going to interest the listeners. We did a show a while back with Dan Walleen when he was starting to talk about developing against Office 365. But we've always had this, going back into the pre.NET days, want to integrate... With Office, with these sort of sovereign apps that live on your machine that you're always interacting with to extend our own applications so you can get functionality like CRM and and the like.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, like when we talk about our vision of what we wanted to do with an Office 365, the the key is, is that our business users, and I spend way too much time in mail, I wish I didn't, but I live in Outlook. And so, having that context switch of moving someone out of Outlook to go to this custom web application that's maybe built on ASP.NET, MVC5 or, you know, whatever platform that the developers are choosing to build on top of, having that ability to kind of add um, task panes into Outlook or into the mail context directly, Allows the end users to stay within Outlook, operate with your business solution that may have a full, you know, full page experience in a browser, but be able to interact with that, that application from within inside Outlook without the user having to do that context switching. And we're seeing that more and more and more. And, um, so there's that aspect of, you know, being in our user interfaces of our products. But then as you say, like with what Dan Walim was doing with, um, his expense manager sample that he had built that was more like I have a full page web application, I'll launch, you know, with demo Um, But I have the ability to then call into Office 365 through our APIs um, and interact with our calendar and the inbox within um, Exchange or interact with files within, within OneDrive for Business or SharePoint.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, just so you know, you think about an expense app, what matters, right? It's Where's the email that incurred the expense? Right. Is the customer record for who this expense is from the same customer record everywhere else? This, right. You know, as soon as you start building a bunch of tools for this stuff, you end up with multiple copies of the customer, and that's hell. I only want one copy of the customer, and it should be the one that I interact with all the time, which is in Outlook.
2: Yeah, and there's some neat examples of that with like the the LinkedIn app, which you can get from the office store for free. Like that'll just show up inside your mail um, as a little little app. And so, you know, it will show anyone in that app who's in the two line or the cc line or the bcc line. And then you'll be able to see more information sourced straight from LinkedIn. But internally, we have that where we're actually pulling that from bunch of systems we have. Um, from kind of HR and our org charts and various other bits and pieces. So, it's kind of you're getting more information about what that email is showing, but without having to leave Outlook, which is really neat. Yeah.
1: I think this is one of those development models that's just starting to emerge now that we we can use these tools and be able to develop the same way. I just hope that we don't get into the same DLL hell traps like Thomas Betts was just describing of, you know, you write this code, but heaven help you trying to deploy it.
2: Right, right. And I think that's you know obviously we've had a few cracks at this with the VSDO com add-ins inside you know Office on the desktop. I think that one of the benefits of this the the app model as it is now is that you know it is on an open stack, so you can write in ASP MVC if you choose. But if you wanted to write in um, you know Node.js or Ruby or Python or um, you know whatever you choose on that back end, you c- you can use that web stack of choice. Um, but the, the main benefit of doing that is, is that you're not just targeting Office on the desktop now. You know, we've got, you know, 35 million downloads of Office on the iOS, right? So if you, there are the top apps in the store still, I believe, for Word, PowerPoint, Excel. Um, very soon you'll be able to, if you've built the app and you've tested it in Outlook desktop or you, you're using Outlook online in a web browser, that same app will run natively inside the iPad versions of those, those Office clients as well. And so we're trying to get well now. And now coverage. you're talking. I
1: mean, that's we're living in this cross-platform world, and it turns out Office is going to start showing up in more of them.
2: Absolutely. Yep. So yeah. So are,
1: are you really talking about a development model where anywhere Office appears, my custom code is going to work?
2: Yeah, and that that's the vision, and that's where we got stuck with the VSTO, like the 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 previous way of building on top of Office, because that wouldn't work on those other stacks. And so, with this new app model, it's allowed us to kind of move to be able to run on any of those different stacks where Office runs. And I I think that's fundamentally where Microsoft has, you know, a a massive competitive edge over, um, you know, some of their competitors that are only browser only. Right. By having those kind of rich clients in the iPad. Like, I love using Word just sitting there on my iPad at home just to make edits to documents and such.
0: So, there's some new announcements coming out around this in the fall, right?
2: There are, yeah. Yeah. So, with the, for the full announcements, essentially, there was the scenario that Dan Wallin did with the expense manager. Um, he was calling into Office 365 APIs there in his Angular uh, JS app. Um, and he was getting at like kind of the mail calendar contacts within Exchange. And um, from the file side, he was getting at uh, the SharePoint files and um, and also OneDrive for Business files, but he was also mm-hmm. getting, getting at some um, data just stored in normal SharePoint lists with a bunch of different structured data in there, um, rather than kind of storing it in SQL. He was storing it in SharePoint so that people, you know, end users could kind of manipulate that data directly from a SharePoint UI, and um, that's all using Azure Active Directory authentication under the covers to um, consent that the app that you're calling these APIs with has permissions to um, permissions to whatever the apps asks for and then allowing them to call in and, and get the access tokens to kind of reach out to those various different endpoints. And they've been in preview since March uh, where we announced them at the SharePoint conference, but um, now we're actually making them generally available. So we've kind of drawn a line in the sand as a V0 um API endpoint and any future enhancements will be versioned on top of the API. Um they have evolved a bit in the preview stage because we were using user voice to get feedback from ISVs and kind of developers out there in the enterprise uh, of what mm-hmm. they thought of those preview APIs and um they've actually mm-hmm. gone through a lot of changes because of that which has been it's been good to see the engineering teams listening and, and making sure that they they you know, getting an API set that any developer out there can take a look at and start using immediately. Does this come
0: from Satya, you think, that this uh, sort of listening to the, I mean, look at the way Windows 10 is being developed, right?
2: Yeah, it's funny. I think definitely he's pushing on the the open, open side of the house and, you know, don't worry about coming into the office like I'm sitting here on a MacBook Pro. I'm doing kind of Xcode development and Android studio development right now against these APIs. And I think yeah. that that's just the nature of the company kind of changing since uh, Satchi became CEO. But I think the, the, for instance, the user voice stuff, we've, we've been doing that since nearly um, October of last year. And so, there was a big push there. Um, We moved Stack Overflow for our forums rather than MSDN because we realized that, look, you're not going to get an Angular guy to sign up on MSDN and start using MSDN forums when they just live in Stack Overflow all day long. And so, there's been a little bit of that switch of, well, where are the web developers and where do we need to be beat and listening? And and that's worked out really well for us, I think.
1: So, going where they are, not insisting they come to you.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we want as very little friction as possible. Um, we've done the same thing, like Dan Orlean's sample that he built. I reached out to him. I said, I've seen your sample through, you know, different um, uh, meetings I've been in. Can we open source it? So we actually got it on our github.com slash office dev um, organizational account. And, we you know, we're actively encouraging more and more people to kind of put things on GitHub. And we're seeing a lot of traction there with cone samples where we've we've got them there.
1: And it's quite a collection of stuff on the Office Dead GitHub site.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting. We've got kind of where we hear, you know, well I need a sample for AngularJS and we're building some out right now for PHP and um I was on a conversation this morning with someone who's using Node.js and, you know, wanted some kind of starter projects to see how to call into these new Office three six five APIs via those those platforms. So we're we're trying to roll as quickly as we can. Um, repos in there for those different things. And then on dev.office.com slash code samples is where we're kind of allowing you to kind of search a bit easier than what the GitHub interface allows you to do to say, you know, show me a sample that's Angular that's using the calendar API. <laughs> and we'll just filter all the, the repos based yeah. on that on that site.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And so uh, you also have these uh, APIs available for multi-platforms, right?
2: Yeah, so, the, I mean, the API is going general availability is kind of the main key announcement, but um, we had an Android SDK in preview as well. Uh, and again, the team working on that is the OpenTech team that do a lot of work with various different divisions of Microsoft to make sure that, you know, our, our Visual Studio story is always going to be the strongest um, because they integrate very closely with engineering, that building APIs, but we also wanted to make it very easy for people to, if they were using Android Studio, or they're using Eclipse to build Android apps, or um, if they're using, you know, Xcode to build iOS apps, that we give them an SDK that they can use, and uh, in a way that they're used to using other SDKs out there from, uh, you know, different platforms. And so we, we uh, actually have kind of matured the Android SDK based on a lot of the feedback since March. And um, as of this week, we've also announced now that we have an iOS SDK available as well. So um, we're hoping that the scenarios where, you know, you might be an enterprise dev or you're an ISV that's already got, Android or iOS apps out there that now you can very easily integrate our services into your product. So maybe if you've hand rolled storing files in your own system, give the user the option to not store it in your repository but store it in their own OneDrive for Business, or or get their availability from their Office 365 calendar, and and those type of common scenarios where people are living in 365. Hey, Richard.
0: Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is. It must be that happy time again. Oh, yeah. My favorite time of the show. Time to finally replace that VB3 app that uses DDE to place order information into a Word doc on the boss's desktop. Oh, my God. I made that app. (laughs) Stop it. I wonder if Jeremy even knows what DDE is. (laughs) It's so freaking
1: old.
2: (laughs) I'm going to put my head up and say I don't know that one. Uh, you know You're what? better off. You're better off for it, my friend.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's Visual Basic 3,
0: Office 4 that used to install a three and a half inch floppy. Dynamic data exchange. Good Lord. Which sometimes worked. Sometimes. You no, know, actually
1: it created dynamic dumb
0: data errors. <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can now create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com devcrafttrial. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Vanko Smilevsky. Hi, ah, congratulations,
1: Vanko. Golf clap for you, sir.
0: Yeah, Vanko just won a Telerik Devcraft collection just for being awesome. That's a big pile of awesome from Telerik in one box. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away $5,000 worth of good stuff, technology, shopping spree, for one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to join to win. And uh, we also like to ask our guests, uh, Jeremy, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology
2: right now. Sir, what would you buy? <laughs> Do you know it's funny? I listen to your show all the time and I, it's in- always interesting hearing what people say. And I think yeah. I'm with a lot of other people in the fact that, you know, being just having a girlfriend, no kids, uh, I've just moved so I don't have a mortgage. If I want something, I just tend to buy it. So, when it's right, like yeah. if someone handed me five grand cash, well, I've pretty much got everything that I need tech-wise. Um, I just treated myself in January to the... Kind of maxed out, fifteen-inch Retina MacBook Pro. Um, so I think the first things I'd buy to kind of add to that would be two of the Thunderbolt twenty-seven-inch displays to hang off of that um, to give more us monitors. Like, yeah, just I mean I've got two in front of me, but they are kind of the Microsoft stock ones, um, like the, I think these are like ViewSonic twenty twenty-four inches or whatever. But um, I was in the store at the right. weekend, and um, they are beautiful, beautiful displays. I think they run for about a thousand bucks a piece. Um, so, I'd definitely, definitely be investing in the monitors and then I suspect I'd probably buy um, an iPhone just to um, get the experience of that over my uh, 15, 20 and see what see what all the uh, huzzah is around and then potentially buy the uh, Apple Watch once it comes out next year and and see how that goes. Although, they seem to be running a bit more expensive than they originally said they were going to be.
1: Yeah, well, you know, they said starting at and that was going to be a bare bones model for sure. Right, right. Speaking of pricey, I mean, that new MacBook that just came out with the 5K display. Oh,
2: very nice. Yes. Dude. Yeah. Dude.
1: Yes. <laughs> you can mow through 5K, 5,000 bucks with that. 5K yeah. for 5K, no problem. That yeah. was
2: starting at two and a half grand, right?
1: Yeah. I think yeah. Bear was 2,500 bucks. Yeah. You, so, you, with you, the you Apple You know, when tax, you load up a MacBook you, right. or Mac Pro, you really could spend some money.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this one was, I think, was hand, three and a half of the terabyte of flash on the bo- the base of it, so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But that monitor, that monitor, they just set the bar again. Yep. Good stuff. Should we, let's talk a little bit about these APIs. Is there a common pattern for developers on how they're supposed to call these things? Because I got to imagine you've got to do some kind of security token call first and then you make the API call.
2: Yeah, so, so what happened was, um, you know, na- the nature of Office 365, you know, I've already mentioned like Exchange and SharePoint and um, they're all different teams and they've all, you know, typically they've done their APIs a little bit differently. So if you'd used the, the SharePoint REST APIs that were launched in SharePoint 2010, you know, th- that kind of interface is very different to if I was using the Exchange EWS APIs to get it like mail and sending mail and things. And so there was an initiative all up by... Um, the platform team to go, right, well, if we're going to like kind of launch these APIs as as one thing and, and talk more in terms of the endpoint of what it's achieving rather than the product, they wanted to kind of make them so they were the same. So, everything is, you know, OData 4 compatible. Um, but the interesting bit is is it does an auth jump at the beginning. So, if you're an Azure developer already and you've been building um, single sign-on web apps, um, using Azure Active Directory, it's using right. that same authentication flow. So you register your app inside Azure AD, um, and essentially you get a client ID and you get a, a client secret with a, and obviously that has a, a, a lifespan either a year or two years. Visual Studio will give you do all that for you for free if you download the the Office 365 API tools, but you can actually manually do this yourself and then put that in your Angular project or your Ruby project or whatever platform you're using. And then essentially when you call the, um, the, the graph API to get the access or the authorization code, once you've got that code back, once it's done that dance and it's challenged the user in their browser to, to sign into their Office 365 tenant, you can then mm-hmm. call what we call the discovery service and the discovery service will return, okay, well, um y- your app has the ability, maybe if you checked all the things, y- you've asked, you know, the the user to give you your app permissions to mail calendar contacts files and um sites and users and groups. um And that user said, okay, and it will dish back to you in the discovery response, all the URLs to those things. So if you wanted to go grab, you know, from the calendar, here's that, that particular user's um API URL endpoint. And then they then they can get the access tokens to then call into that endpoint and make calls to get the mail from their inbox or create a folder in their inbox for them automatically and send a mail on that user's behalf, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Now are these just libraries I call in, in Visual Studio like you know, I, rem- I spent some time with Visual Studio Tools for Office, yeah. and Visto. Like, where does all of that fit in today when it comes to working with them in studio?
2: Yeah, good, good question. So, uh, where I mentioned before about the kind of the app model and the way forward with this kind of open platform approach, that the VSTO apps that, you know, people have been building for years and years and years will still su- – you can still go and create them in Visual Studio and they are supported right. in, you know, the the latest version of Office client and they'll be re- reported the, the next major version of the Office desktop client. But as I mentioned with the app model, um, you know, you really need to be using the new apps for Office, which is a web-based kind of way of building those extensions into the Office client that will work across all the plat- all the Office client platforms. Um, right. So, but if I'm in, uh, if I go file new projects inside of Visual Studio and I create a new ASPID on MVC project or um, I create a new WPF project or maybe a Xamarin project um, or a Cordova project, once the project's running, if I've got the Office 365 tools installed from the tools extension menu, when I right click on the projects and go add, there's a new connected service menu option and that pops you up a little dialog box and um right now office 365 is um the only one in there but the intention is is that there'll be other services that you'll be able to connect to but the visual studio team kind of used us as the you know the the first cab off the rank there and what it will do is if you click the office 365 it'll it'll ask you to sign in to a tenant and once you've signed in that dialog is actually calling the discovery service to list you know these are the um these are the services that your app can can um, request for access for. So, I could tick, you know, files and and say, I want full control or maybe I only need read control and click OK. Right. And that does all the plumbing and the wiring um, in your Visual Studio project for you. It pulls down the NuGet packages and adds the assembly references and wires them up in the web config. Um, and then it also goes away and registers that app, your application that's kind of obviously the one that's been created in the Visual Studio into Azure AD and creates a client ID and a secret and then stores those things automatically into your web config. So, you know, from having nothing um, in a you know, new Visual Studio project, I'm pretty much up and running within 60 seconds against the service and then can just start um, calling the um, the classes in my code to fetch those things back as strongly typed objects.
1: Nice. So, I mean, it just as soon as you're logged into your cloud account, yeah. stuff's going to appear for you.
2: Right, right. Um, but the, the only caveat there is, is that there is a, uh, like a radio box flick, which is that obviously when you log in and sign in with Azure, it's registering that in the Office 365's Azure AD instance that it's tied to. Um, right. If you're an ISV and you're building an app, you don't, you know, you don't want to have to keep like recompiling and shipping apps that have different client IDs and secrets in them. So, you need to flick that yes. project type to multi-tenant. Um, and then essentially what that tells Azure AD is, look, you know, any Office 365 tenant that runs this app, if the user gets prompted for credentials and puts in, you know, a different tenant's credentials, Azure AD will, you know, read and entrust that, that app but then add and register that app in their I'm Azure AD thinking. tenant.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, even if we're working with a given Azure tenant, the privileges differences between what a developer will have, which is typically everything, and what the normal user would have, which is hopefully not everything. Right, right. I got to think that's challenging to code for, just to know what the behaviors are going to be.
2: Yeah, so in that dialogue, you know, they. I think the key pit when we're sort of educating the developers as we kind of communicate this is that, you know, you should only really ask for what you need because when the user right. logs in, the next page they see if their login is, you know, this app is asking for access to read your calendar and read your inbox and access the files in your OneDrive for business. And when that user consents that, that's when it registers the app in Azure AD and then the app can go and get access to, the, to those things as that user. So, it's impersonating that user when it makes those calls. Right. Um, so, it is kind of on the end user to kind of, you know, don't just click consent without really reading on what the app's going to be doing. But then on the back sure. end, the, the tenant admin, when he logs into Azure Active Directory and looks in the applications window, it'll list all the applications that have access to the active directory and it will show you know which users have consented those apps and he can they can revoke them there as well or they can or they can say the user can't consent at all and if he wants access to or he or she wants access to an app they'll have to reach out to the tenant admin and, and the tenant admin would have to approve those apps first before an end user would be able to use them. Well, and part
1: of this is just as a programmer, how do I code for... I've been in this trap where I I enter my credentials and clearly I don't have sufficient permissions, but its only reaction is to ask for my credentials again. You know, I want to know as a developer... When I, because it's all going to work perfect for me on my machine with all the privileges in the right, world. Right, right, right. How do I write my code so that when he doesn't have sufficient permissions, or he's asking, we're asking for the wrong things, we deal with that well, we degrade well.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the the, the scenario with the one the endpoints we've got um, around you know your calendar mail contacts and your OneDrive for business the users always going to have access to those cuz it's it's their right. their items the the caveat to that is that the files api can also go and uh, reach out to files living in SharePoint team sites and that that scenario right. there would be even if the app said i want full control of you know all this all the site collections that user has access to that doesn't stop the user maybe from trying to within the app, put a URL into a document that lives in a team site that app doesn't have access to. And at that right. point, if the if the app tries to call to access that file that user doesn't have access to, it'll get a, a, a basically a, the 401 access denied error and then your app can just handle the, you know, you don't have access to this this file.
1: And I guess that's, you know, all I really want is to know that I get a different error message as a dev that I can respond to yeah, that's for right. not being able to get to that file yeah. then his credentials are bad or he doesn't have sufficient privileges, I, you know, that granularity to me is really important because it's what gets people super frustrated using these tools.
2: Yeah. And and, and when we first, um, when we do this general availability like it, that's now, it's, it's very open. So, it's like the app can ask for full control of all site collections. But what we've got coming in the future is if your app, you know that it's going to, It's always going to have a site collection provisioned and all the data the app's dealing with is in that one site collection within SharePoint. Your app eventually will be able to declare, I only need full control to this site collection, not all site collection the users has. Whereas when it, when we first ship, you know, when we ship now, it's, um, it's only going to, you'll have to ask for all access to site collections. So there's some, there's some stuff coming that allow you to be a bit more granular and smarter about what the app asks for as well. That's cool so i noticed
0: that in the apis there's a file handler extension
2: yes can you for onedrive can you talk about that yeah so um what, one of the things as well as these apis that we've we've launched this week is um this notion of we've we've always had the office well apps for office which you know you can build extension points in the ui against outlook powerpoint excel and word Or an app for SharePoint where you could kind of go in and add an app part or have an app living within an existing SharePoint team site. The the idea of the file um, handler extension is that... Wherever the file lives, we want you to be able to kind of light up the UI and extend it. So, for instance, um, the one we, we demoed in um, the, the, the sessions at, this week at TechEd was around when you view a file that my, maybe we don't understand the file extension type of. So, maybe it's a CAD drawing um, and you have a, a web-based CAD viewer. You can actually go in and extend, um, the, our interface so that when you click on that document, it'll show up with a, you know, the pop up there and you'll be able to see the, uh, the viewer, but it'll actually be using your web viewer that you've created to show that CAD drawing. And then you can actually go in and click edit and it will launch your CAD online experience, but it'll be single signed on in via Azure AD and it'd ed- be editing that document. And then when you save in that, Um, So, it'll save that file back into the OneDrive for Business or into SharePoint. Um, So, it's kind of a way of you being able to extend the -the out-of-the-box experiences across, you know, the whole of the Office 365 experience, not just where in the past we had, you know, extend Office client or extend the SharePoint team sites. And there'll be a few more coming like that, um, you know, very shortly, uh, beginning of next year, where, you know, if you wanted to extend the uh, print or the share functionality across Office 365 endpoints, you'll be able to do that. So, that the file extension handler is the first of many of these the, these ways of deploying the ability to hook into our UI, you know, no matter where that file lives. Um, and we've got other ext- extensible points as well. So, the, the app launcher... Mm-hmm. Um, the app launch that we announced last week actually well, from, on blogs.office.com, we um, we realized we were running out of real estate at the top of the Office 365, we call it the sweet bar and um, we decided to move the kind of the Outlook calendar, you know, Yammer, SharePoint sites links off into its own kind of pop-up menu on the in the top left corner. And if you click on the the app launcher there, it'll show you all the icons for Yammer, OneDrive, Sites, Power BI, Delve. And that's across the experience. So if I'm in Outlook online or I'm viewing a document in Word, when I click on the app launcher, I'll be able to jump and, and switch between all of our products But um, what we announced this week was that you can now add your own apps in there as well and be side by side as like a a first party citizen there. So, you know, if you've got your own expense tracking app or your own HR portal for submitting uh, leave or, you know, time, you'll be able to have Mm -hmm. that icon directly next to Delve and Power BI. And when you click and launch that, it'll use the single sign on Azure Active Directory and um, load your web app straight away. So, it's it's really nice now to have that kind of that flow where you're not jumping in and out of our experience. You can stay in the experience altogether.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Are there any more extensibility points
2: that you haven't covered? Th- those, those two are the ones we've announced this week. And then, as I say, we'll be kind of trucking them out now that we've got kind of the base authentication plumbing and the hooks and um, ready to go. So, that's it's kind of nice in, in that sense that, you know, this is kind of just kind of drawing the line in the sand on this is where this is where we're going with the vision now of you being able to extend our out-of-the-box experience.
0: And just to recap, these APIs are now available for every platform, right? Is there any platform that isn't supported?
2: No, so essentially if you're a web platform um and you want to call in using just standard REST RESTful technology, you can you can use our APIs. Um we provide the SDKs for Android iOS. Um and really it's just a wrapper, just that makes it a bit easier yeah. to do their wiring rather than calling raw rest. Um exactly but and we'll roll we'll continue on releasing SDKs with things like PHP and Ruby. Um, as we see that demand moving through, and then obviously all the Visual Studio project types that I mentioned before, they have their own uh, SDK and, and wiring with a friendly right. wizard as well. So it's really easy to get started and call in for what, whatever makes sense for that platform.
0: Okay, right. uh, and we want to touch on dev.office.com. This is sort of the the what the center of the universe for developing. On Pretty Office.
2: much, we all have the tattoos. Um, if you stand still too close in <laughs> the conference, we will tattoo you with the lo- the URL as well.
0: <laughs> um, it's
2: um the place to go. Uh, we've we've you know we've had a, a few different properties over the time. Um, but this one is really where we're trying to kind of centralize everything. So, you know, you can go get all your code samples. Um, dev.office.com slash training is we've got over kind of thirty hours of training on there right now on demand with uh, hands on labs and and code samples and all the slide decks you can go and you know use for interning training internally or If you want to borrow it to speak at user groups, you can do. Um, And then we have all the guidance around transforming your uh, SharePoint code and your Office code from, you know, the solution package WSP days and the VSTO days in Office. Um, We provide some guidance there on how you can um, transform that code over to this new way and and, and get the benefits of of this new app model.
0: Okay. Uh, Is there anything else that we haven't covered um, I guess just a about. little
2: plug, as we have got podcast listeners on the show, is um, I do do a weekly show specifically around Office 365 um, development, and um, that, that that's all linked from the resources page there on dev.office.com as well. And um, it'd great. be great to, not steal, but borrow um, some of your listeners to check out Absolutely. some of the, the stuff that we do there, and um, like, you know, vice versa. It's been great to hear you get kind of people like Dan Waleen on the show and... Um, get him talking about the office 365 dev story as well so I appreciate you guys doing that
0: just keeps getting better
2: oh let's hope Thank so you.
0: yeah thanks a lot for talking to us Jeremy
2: no you're welcome I appreciate giving you time to give him the show all right and we'll see you next time on dot net rocks.